Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and today we are going to hang out with one of your soon-to-be favorite people. Her name is Emily Grassley, and she has the amazing title of Chief Curiosity Correspondent at the Field Museum here in Chicago. She also hosts a YouTube series called The Brain Scoop. And this summer, she is the host of a new three-part series on PBS called Prehistoric Road Trip. I know there's more to discover within our own backyards. So I'm heading back to the area where I grew up in the northern Great Plains, the heart of America's fossil country. We'll come face to face with the diverse prehistoric creatures that called this planet home. Emily goes fossil hunting right here in the U.S., And she meets cool scientists and reminds us that there's millions of years of natural history right in our backyards. We're going to talk to Emily about Prehistoric Road Trip, how loving art and science does not have to be mutually exclusive. And I promise she is going to show you how she can make pretty much anything interesting. Emily, hey. Yay. Hi. I'm so happy to be here. (laughs) Oh, I just love how your enthusiasm for science and discovery is absolutely contagious. Thank you. Yeah. You know, it's it is my life's delight to find the joy and little things in the world. Yeah, there's there's this amazing line. I think it was you even used it in a clip in that like intro intro to prehistoric road trip where you're just like, I love clams. Yeah, <laughs> we. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> You know, if if anybody's been following my work for a long time, one thing I am a champion for, it is the uncharismatic, underrepresented microfauna of our planet. And (laughs) the ambassador for that campaign would go to bivalves and clams. They are so underrated. Every time I learn a new clam fact, I'm like, you know what? Step aside, pandas. We don't need you as the face of the WWF anymore. Put the clams up there. Wait, so what's a good clam fact? I'm going to put you on the spot now with the clams. Goodness. Did you know (laughs) that the majority of species listed on the Endangered Species Act in the United States are different kinds of bivalves or clams? Really? There's so much clam diversity in the world. And they play such important and such niche roles within their environment, and they are so endangered. They're they're natural filter feeders, so they filter out a lot of pollutants in the water. So naturally, wow. like if you get rid of the filter feeders, you're you're going to get rid. You know, you'll have a lot of pollution, right? Or you end up with something like Lake Michigan, which is way too blue because of all of the zebra clams. That's a whole different story. I'm anti zebra clam, but pro all other clams. Um, not all clams. <laughs> Part of what I think gets me really worked up about by freshwater bivalves in particular is that they're 
decline in population has ties with the um, the button industry. What? Out of every out of anything. Yes, buttons. It goes all the way back to the early 1900s in the U.S. <laughs> when when um, an early button maker from Germany who was fed up with the natural resources that he was provided with there, which were bones and timber and rocks. You, you can only do so much with those materials for, sure. for buttons. As a yeah. button maker, he's like, I need uh -huh. to find new button material. So he comes over to the United States and literally slips and like cuts his heel open on a clam while walking in a river. And he's like, I found it. I have found the new source for my buttons. <laughs> Button makers just relied on freshwater clams for decades until they basically exploited all the clam populations and then they left and we're still cleaning up the mess from the insidious button industry and its over-exploitation of freshwater bivalves from the 1900s. Wow. So yeah, I, I have a lot of feelings about clams. Oh my God, I had no idea. Okay, so as delightful as it is to discuss clams with you, that is not actually why we invited you on the show today. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, I love it. It makes me very happy. I also can't wait to talk about the new show on PBS, but I think first for people who aren't familiar other with your other jobs and with you maybe other than the fact that now you are passionate about clams. Can you tell people a little bit about like what a chief curiosity correspondent is? Because I don't know. I just feel like that is the coolest job title ever, let alone the fact that it's at one of Chicago's most amazing natural history museums. Yeah. So my role with the museum is uh, essentially I created and I host and write a educational YouTube channel called The Brain Scoop. And it's our job to highlight a lot of the interesting work that goes on behind the scenes at natural history museums. Because what is the percentage of stuff at a place like the field where like, you know, you have your exhibitions, but that's what, like maybe 20 percent of like the amazing things that are happening at that museum? It, all of our exhibitions represent uh, less than 1%, actually. Less than 1%? Yeah. That's insane. Less than 1%. Well, we have, we have like 40 million objects and artifacts that the Field Museum cares for, houses, and makes available for researchers. And yeah, I mean, we might have like a million square feet of public exhibition space, but um, we have way more things like clams that are behind the scenes. Uh, <laughs> And in all of across all of our various divisions and departments and collections from anthropology to meteorites to, um, yes, invertebrates uh, and fish and everything in between. So, yeah, it's been over 125 years of learning how, more about the, the planet and, and what we have here. So you were an art major in undergrad. Is that true? Yeah, I have a, my my bachelor's of fine arts in studio art, and I uh, emphasize painting, actually landscape painting. How does a person who has become sort of like the poster child for science literacy and STEM and like discovery and delight, like, did you have experiences with those things as a kid that helped shape the work you're doing now? I, for sure. You know, I feel very privileged and fortunate. I was very lucky to grow up in a you know, with parents who really encouraged my exploration and creativity in the world. I also grew up in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Um, so I had a lot of opportunities to play outside and get really familiar with the, the natural world in my own backyard. Um, but, you know, it kind of came down to how science was taught in the public school system. 
I wasn't a really good student. I don't know if you can tell, but I kind of have some uh, focus and some uh, attention, uh, <laughs> you know, struggles with sitting still and keeping my hand down in class. So I was a pretty disruptive student and I really didn't perform super great in my academic classes like science and math. And I performed pretty like, I don't know, average or below average on science um, tests. And I just got the impression that I wasn't good at science. I also got the impression that science wasn't a creative field and some, you know, get the impression that everything was already figured out when you're talking and you learn about scientists like you, you might have a chapter and you learn about Marie Curie. She's the only woman you learn about in science. And mm-hmm. she died 150 years ago or whatever. And then the next scientist you hear about is somebody else who's like, who lived an unimaginably long time ago when you're, you know, a high school student. You're like, I don't know, 1950s. That was forever ago. So yeah, like totally. you just don't, you just kind of get the impression that with the advent of the internet, they must have figured everything out by now. And the more that you, you know, grow up and look at the world around us, we realize just how little we actually know about it. And after I graduated with my studio art degree, I I began to learn just how that way of viewing the world by actually sitting and and studying it visually. Yeah, like landscape especially, right? Right. You're studying every aspect of an environment and you see you know, every shape of a plant and you see all of the lines in the skull of an animal that you might be drawing from in a museum. And you just are, you have all these questions like, why does this grow this way? Why is this environment constructed this way? What is this bone? What is this called? Uh, you start to ask these scientific questions of inquiry. And I realized that that's really what science is, is making observations and then Uh, And then, you know, asking a question and then testing your question and then, you know, repeating it, the scientific Mm -hmm. process. Yeah. And so, yeah, I I think I've always kind of been um, programmed to be curious about the world. And it wasn't until I kind of broke free of that traditional schooling structure that I realized that there's a lot more lines that are blurred between art and science than there are clear divisions between these uh, fields of inquiry. Totally. Well, and it's funny, too, because I feel like you could say a lot of the same things about museums also, right? Where like at face value, a lot of people just think museums is where like you just keep a bunch of old stuff and that's it. And it's already been all done. Right. But then when you really realize that like that's less than one percent of what's happening behind the scenes, like that just opens everything up in such a cool way, too. Yeah. And that was really the impetus between behind wanting to create the brain scoop, which is, you know, bringing a video camera into those collection spaces and making videos about the kind of work that goes on behind the scenes because most people don't have an idea and why would they, right? To the public's credit, if you don't make this information and these objects and these specimens and these collections like available in one way or another, they might not be able to be physically available because you know, of the logistical challenges of wanting to shuttle 1.3 million people through your collection spaces, like that's Mm -hmm. not gonna happen. (laughs) But, But what, you know, museums, Owe, owe it to their constituents to um, provide access in other ways. And that's really what the Brain Scoop is um, seeking to do, which is to make a lot of that information and, and going that work to, to be accessible. So let's talk about Prehistoric Road Trip because I think it's awesome and it's delightful. I'm just going to keep you. overusing that <laughs> word. So your work has dipped into a lot of different sciences. Why focus on geology and paleontology in this show? 
what I loved about the program is just that I just don't think geology is made accessible in a lot of ways either. Um, when you're talking about concepts that are millions or hundreds of millions to billions of years old, it's um, pretty challenging for anybody to wrap their mind around those deep time concepts. Well, and and, you know, let me just say, if you're skeptical that Emily could show as much enthusiasm for rocks as she can about clams, have no fear. OK, <laughs> we, I, had, I got really emotional about rocks. Uh, on more than one occasion throughout the filming of, of the project. Let's just, it's really, it's overwhelming and it, it's humbling is what it is. I think that's really yeah. what, like, what, you know, grips my heart is when you think about everything that our planet has been through and how long it takes for these continents to shift and for mountains to be built and for ecosystems to rise and fall and rise and fall. And, you know, we've been through six major mass extinction events on our planet and here we are i guess living through the sixth one right now you just it, there's a fragility of existence that comes into focus and i think that's really what kept gripping me again and again as you were putting it together you, you know you talked about how you wanted like it to be an easy access point for people was there a specific kind of person who you sort of envisioned as being like the ideal audience member for it well in the same way that we kind of approach like making content for brain scoop is that this is for curious people. So it's more yeah. of like, it's created for people who are predisposed to having a natural curiosity about the world. But at the same time, you know, mm -hmm. we know uh, from brain scoop that 40% of our audience uh, is coming from women and girls, which is a really high percentage of viewership from women and girls compared to other science channels on YouTube. I mean, normally it's like 90% male viewership on science wow. programming. Yeah. Huh. So uh, I think one of the reasons we're able to resonate with um, women and girls so much is just because of the diverse representation of people who we interview and that I'm kind mm -hmm. of an unconventional uh, science television host. So I think that um, helps make my journey into this more relatable um, and more accessible. So, yeah, that that makes me wonder, like, I don't know, as you say, obviously, you're not the first person to try to make science accessible and fun in video form. But what do you think you bring to it that makes it so unique and like such a pleasure to watch? I, I really think I'm just genuinely earnest um, you are, <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't know what it is about me. I I've tried to figure this out over the years, but I, I honestly think, um, I, I don't really fully understand it about myself. I've just been really lucky to work with people who get me and, um, <laughs> and who get me more than I get myself sometimes. And, and so I give a lot of credit to like my co-producer, Ali Gimbel on the show, who. Um, just lets me run with these wild ideas. And, you know, if I've got, I'm like, okay, you know what I want to do? I want to, for the third episode, um, let's go try to find this pallid sturgeon, this endangered fish, and we'll link it to like the fossil record. And, you know, so I'll kind of get these wild ideas. And she'll just help me like run with them and um, <laughs> helps kind of protect me from uh, a lot of the outside influence that you see coming in when you start to get a little bit bigger as like a, I guess for lack of better words, as a personality or like a brand, you know, there's yeah, a certain yeah. commodification of people where, you know, an agent might want to market you a certain way or people want you to try to, I don't know, focus on selling one thing or another. And I, I just, 
I just feel very fortunate. I've been shielded from a lot of that. And I just get to work with people who um, support my vision and <laughs> can, can retain that creative voice. Uh, in yeah, the process. Yeah, you get excited about clams. Right, yeah. You know, like, I don't have anybody telling me, like, Emily, too much clam talk. Clams, though? Yeah, and I'm like, no, guys, just stick with me about this. It's really important, I promise. Emily Grassley, thank you so much for coming on Nerdette. This was really fun to talk with you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Clams, man. Emily Grassley is just so great. Be sure to check out Prehistoric Road Trip on PBS and The Brain Scoop on YouTube. All right, we're going to hear from some of you about your road trips in just a minute. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Now is the part of the show where we hear from you. Since Emily's PBS show involves a road trip, we were curious about some of the most epic road trips that y'all have taken, and here is what you told us. Hi, Nerdette. My name is Michaela from Northern Virginia. This is Liz calling from Seattle, currently on a road trip from Seattle to Southern Oregon. This is Roxanne in California. My name is Jen. I'm calling from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, to tell you about my most epic and most nerdy road trip. The most epic road trip that I think I have ever been on was two legs of a cross-country move, and I, I did the drive myself. I flew to Portland to help... A friend moved to a town near Buffalo, uh, and we could have just cut straight across, but we decided to go uh, via the Grand Canyon. I drove first a U-Haul out from California to Nashville, Tennessee, and then I flew back and drove my car out from California to Nashville, Tennessee. We had made all these mixed CDs, but the car CD player didn't work. So we listened to NPR for 3,000 miles. I have two older (laughs) sisters, and my dad would all give us 10 dimes at the start of the road trip. And each time we would ask, how much longer? Are we there yet? Uh, He would make us pay a dime. My favorite road trip (laughs) snacks are sugar snap peas, Mm. grapes. As the youngest, my two older sisters would always be like, hey, Michaela, Asked dad how much longer so we would all get the information but i was the only one who ever ran out of dimes <laughs> mini cucumbers <laughs> and popcorn we had to get to her husband because she was going to be ovulating and wanted to get pregnant and they actually did <laughs> kettle corn if i really need an energy boost <laughs> and that is my story and I can't wait to hear this episode thanks Nerdette thanks for asking good questions Nerdette thanks for everything love you guys oh my goodness Michaela, Liz, Roxanne, Jennifer those were amazing the dime strategy is good though I don't know if there are three of you and you each have 10 dimes that still means your dad had to hear it possibly as many as 30 times which seems like too many good snack ideas though those are great All right, so Book Club is this coming Friday, which means we would love to know what you think of Last Tang Standing. Send us your thoughts before we tape on Wednesday afternoon. Just record yourself and email the file to nerdatpodcast at gmail.com. 
All right, that's it for today. Justin Bull produces the show and Brendan Banozak is our executive producer. We will see you on Friday. Oh, whoa. I love clams. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.